But misconceptions, we kicked it off last week, and, and the idea of this sermon series is a bit different. Uh, normally, when we do a sermon here, we look at a scripture and we pull a lot of points out of that. Typically, it's part of an expositional series where we work through a book. But this kind of series is valuable, too, uh, in that it's, it's really a conceptual series. And we're taking a look at many different biblical examples, and you see a high-level, well-rounded view of biblical truth, especially in ways that it applies directly to our lives and, and how we live it out every day. And, and there's a bit of a struggle in a series like this, and, and one is that you just cover a variety of, of scriptures. And, and I have my Bible tabbed out of the scriptures we're going to be going to today, so I can get to them quickly. Uh, so I'll, I'll do my best to uh, make sure and announce ahead of time. If you're one that likes to read in your Bible, I encourage you to do that. I'll announce ahead of time so you have time to flip to that, that script review before we read it. Uh, but the advantage, again, is that we get this clear, well-rounded uh, view of, of biblical truth as we deal with these misconceptions that we as Christians so often hold on to. And today is one that, that I almost feel like we don't need to talk about in our church, but, but we still need to. Uh, it's, it's the misconception that Christians should not associate with non-Christians. And by that I mean that we actively separate ourselves from anyone that doesn't believe in Christ and, and you, you kind of keep to yourself, live in a cave, be a reclusive Christian in a lot of ways. And, and I feel like we don't need to talk about that so much just because we're kicking off a week, we're inviting many unbelievers in our community. We hope and pray that they come into our church, that we can associate with them. And we just heard from some missionaries we support, but that's their life's calling, is, is to take the gospel to the unbelievers. But it's, it's an idea that was alive in Jesus' time, and it's, and it's still alive in many ways, shapes, and forms in our life. And, and one of the main opponents for Jesus was the Pharisees. And the, the word Pharisee itself means one who is separated. And the idea is that you had the righteous and you had the sinners. You had the chosen, the Jews, and you had the, uh, those destined for destruction, the Gentiles. And, and you should always separate yourself from one another. And this thought process uh, works its way into the church at times as well. And even in our culture, we see this really uh, invading every part of our culture. Now, we see this concept of a cancel culture, that if you disagree with someone, you are to disavow yourself from them and, and distance yourself from them. But that's not how the church was created. It's not why we're here today. If, if that was our mode of operation as a church, it would have ended shortly after the time of Jesus. We know biblically, and many of us understand, that our calling and our purpose is to reach the lost and to bring the gospel of Christ to a broken and a needy world. If we want the kingdom to grow, we have to reach people where they're at. And we can't just expect them to come in and hear the gospel. So the first biblical insight we're going to look at today is from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 6. And you're welcome to turn there now. But it's really an acknowledgement, first of all, that, that we do need to be wise with our relationships with unbelievers. And that is that you can't just uh, throw all caution to the wind and put yourself in a situation that might compromise your values or tempt you beyond your control. That there is a bit 
of wisdom and prudence that you need to carry as you build these relationships with unbelievers. We see this also in the Proverbs that the righteous should choose their friends carefully for the way of the wicked leads them astray. Or in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that bad company corrupts good character. So we know we need to be careful in our relationships, but it doesn't mean that we should avoid any kind of association at all. So the scripture we're looking at in in 2 Corinthians 6 is one that many of us are familiar with, this concept of being yoked with unbelievers. If we read uh, verses 14 and 15, it says this, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? So many people might read this and say, well, that means that I should not even talk with an unbeliever. I should not be with them in any way, shape, or form. But we see through this this concept of a contrast. There's light and dark. There's Christ and Belial, which is really the personification of wickedness and unrighteousness. There's the believer and the unbeliever. And it's giving us the concept of that first we should be cautious about the depth of relationships that we build with an unbeliever. And by that, I mean we have, we have to reference really what this is referring to, which is Deuteronomy 22.10. Don't plow with an ox and a donkey together. And I don't think any uh, farmer in the right, man, right mind would attempt this to begin with, but it's a word picture that brings us to a deeper uh, concept, which is that you shouldn't pair people together that are going to work opposite from one another. An ox is one who is disciplined and resolute and obedient A donkey is wild and stubborn and independent. In other words, be careful of the binding relationships you build with people. And there's a difference now between being around people and being bound to people. And that's the key distinguisher here as we look at a verse like this. What kind of people are you being bound to? Christ tells us to take his yoke upon our shoulders. And so we understand as Christians that we are to be yoked to Jesus first, that we become partners with him and his work in the world, that he gives us the pace and the direction, that he gives us guidance, instruction, and leadership. And in that, when we make relationships in this world with other people, that really binds us to them, we have to make sure they're not pulling us away from Christ. So this is really talking about yoking, not associating in general. And there's a big difference. And how this is applied plays out differently for every single person. You need to know yourself first. How susceptible are you to lapsing in your morals or being overcome by temptation considering the people you might be around. Well, that would then determine the kinds of relationships that you build with them. And consider the the direction of influence, the relationships you're building with people. Are you influencing them for Christ, or are they influencing you away from Christ? 
use wisdom, use discernment. And really how we should read this verse is, is in the context of dating or marriage. Uh, the idea of missionary dating is just not a great idea. And I suppose there's times it could have worked and has worked. But you shouldn't be married or date a non-believer. You shouldn't be business partners with a non-believer who could make you lapse in your morals or your values. It's those close relationships you need to guide, guard yourself with. But it's not telling us to just disassociate from unbelievers altogether. And that's where we come to our second insight today, which is really recognizing the true opponents to the faith and respond appropriately to them. Now we're going to be reading out of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and 3 for this part, if you want to start flipping your way there. But when we think about opponents of our faith, the kind of people we should uh, disassociate from, we often focused first and foremost on morality. We look at the, the outward most part of them, that morality really is, in many ways, the extension, the furthest extension of what's happening in their heart. And so we think the best way to keep the church healthy is to keep the sinners out of church. But are the immoral unbelievers the true opponents of the church? You know, and sometimes we look at the world around us, people who don't profess to be Christians or have any interest in it at all, and we shake our heads and just say, how can they be so immoral and godless? And it's shocking to us. But the reality is we cannot expect those who don't profess to be a Christian to live with Christian morals. They are by no means a threat to the church. And if we distance ourselves from these sinners and our unbelievers, then what does that make the church to be? You know, one of my favorite quotes is from Charles Spurgeon. And he said, The church is not a museum for the saints, but a hospital for the sinners. Immoral people are not the problem, especially immoral people who do not claim to be Christians. And we get confused with that often. One of them comes from a verse we're about to read right here in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 2 through 5. It's talking about in the last days, there are going to be terrible times. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. You might be saying, isn't that going against the very point you're making, Dominic? Didn't we just read we're not supposed to have anything to do with those sinners out there? Well, this is an example where a series and a sermon like this is important because context is key and the whole of biblical truth really uh, tells us what this is saying. Now, if we just looked at one of these things, people who are disobedient to their parents, we should have nothing to do with them. We should cancel our children's ministry in our church, right? I need to dis disassociate myself from my own son. And any number of these things you could look at, if you're going to disassociate yourself from those people, our church is going to get small really, really fast. 
This itself is not talking about the people out there, not talking about the people who occasionally sin. It's really part of a bigger section that's talking about false teachers. And verse 5 is key here. It's people who have a form of godliness but deny its power. In other words, they appear Christian but they deny Christ. It's those who call themselves Christians. And we see that same concept in uh, 1 Corinthians 5. Now, this whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 5 is one devoted to explaining to the kinds of people we should distance ourselves from as a church. And it's referring to an instance in this church of sexual immorality. But Paul clarifies in that. He says, I told you in a previous letter, in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 5, to not associate with those who are sexually immoral. But then he clarifies, I wasn't talking about the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, or in other words, etc., etc. If that were the case, then you'd have to just leave this world altogether. What he's referring to are those who call themselves brothers and sisters, and yet continue into this pattern of boastful sin, where they reject the teachings of Christ, and they live with the fruit of fleshliness rather than the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the opponents. Those are the ones we have to be careful about, not the ones who don't even call themselves a Christian. And so we see, going back to 2 Timothy, this idea that, that he's assuming that we as Christians are going to be talking with those opponents. And we read in, in 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 20 through 26, that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, who is taking them captive to do his will. I think this really explains to us what we need to be as Christians, as ones that we aren't resentful towards those who aren't living up to the faith. And even when they're ones who claim to be Christians, we don't immediately give up on them and abandon them. But we're to be kind, to offer truth. In other words, give them a chance for correction. And key points of this text here specifically is, is first that we're not people that are prone to engage into arguments. As soon as you start fighting with someone about the faith, you've already lost. When you argue and you quarrel, not much productive comes from that. To be kind to everyone, to be in your heart a teacher, one that wants to teach them the truths of Christ and to gently instruct them. We also see that we are to keep hope We keep hope that God will grant them repentance and lead them to the truth. In other words, it's not really our work to win them over, it's God's. And we have the hope that God can win anyone over no matter how far they're gone. Remember the one who's writing this. The one who persecuted and hated Christians for many years. And is now a key evangelist in the faith and instructing the young Timothy in how to do the same. Don't give up hope. But also remember the true battle, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. 
It's against Satan, who schemes, who tricks, who traps, who brings people into deceit. And the true enemy of the church is not people, it's Satan, the father of lies. That every person has hope. That we are to give them a chance to not be motivated by fear that they are a problem for the church, but rather motivated by love that we could win them to Christ. And after you've done so, after you've attempted kindly and gently, then sadly you may have to make the choice to disassociate yourself from them. See, there's a big difference here when you're motivated by love rather than fear. And if your gut reaction is always fear towards people, I don't believe that's God's motivation. But if your gut reaction is to love them, to attempt to win them over through all kindness and gentleness, that's the way the Lord works and instructs. See, I think the point I'm getting to here is really in in the next scripture we're going to look at. The insight number three is that we are to view our interaction with outsiders as an opportunity rather than a threat. Look at people through the lens of change and hope and opportunity rather than a threat. And this comes out of the book of Colossians chapter 4. It's a beautiful part of scripture that we studied about three months ago very quickly. But it really, it really brings to the question of how are you motivated? Is your prime motivation to thin the herd or to expand the kingdom? And there's a big difference between the two. But we can always find reasons to distance ourselves from others. But every interaction with an unbeliever brings with it a great potential not only to change their life, change their eternity, but change the kingdom of God. And we see here, before we are about to read what we are going to read in verses 5 and 6 in Colossians 4, that Paul is really, again, he's like, he's the guy. He's the evangelist who's won thousands of people over to Christ in his life up to this point. But he still says to this church of Colossians, can you, can you pray for me? Pray for me that God opens every door possible that I can interact with these unbelievers, that I can share the right words and really proclaim Christ to them in a true and authentic way. And then he gives this instruction to the church and consequently to us. We are to be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Be wise in your actions and your words, because every interaction you have with an outsider or an unbeliever is an opportunity. That's we understand actions are so important. They're, they're louder than words we hear. Be wise in the way you act toward them. And make the most out of every opportunity. And this is really interesting the way it's written. It's actually directly uh, translated as, buy up the time you have. In other words, understand this opportunity you have may be your last opportunity or your only opportunity. Our time is limited in this world. And if you have these opportunities before you and say, you know, I'm going to get them next time. I'm going to be kind to them. I'm going to exemplify Christ with my actions to them next time. There there may not be a next time. It's living with the wisdom that 
that God would teach us to number our days and make the most of every opportunity. We also understand we need to be wise in the words we share with them. And words have great power with them. Our words should always be purposeful and edifying and, and, and loving and kind. See, harsh, nasty words, they might be very useful in winning an argument, but they very rarely win a person to Jesus. Words seasoned with salt are ones that are wholesome and flavorful and meaningful. Share a message with them that they'd want to chew on. So we understand people who don't follow Christ are not the problem. They're actually the opportunity. The fact that they're not following Christ is the problem. And you may be part of God's solution. Make the most of the opportunity. Because if not us, the church, then who? Is society going to bring them to Christ? Is Hollywood or big tech or government? I mean, these are the things that they're, they're left to. It's, it's us as a church that brings them to Christ. Make the most of the opportunity. But really what we need to follow here is the example of Jesus. And that's our fourth insight today out of Matthew 9, if you want to make your way there. But Jesus, as, as you get to know him and, and read about him, and you understand that he was one that did not shy away from the marginalized, the sinners, the ones that everyone else gave up on. Jesus went too. And there's many examples of Jesus associating with the, the sinners and, and those that society seemed, uh, deemed uh, non-valuable. There's the lepers, the thieves, the adulteress, the prostitutes, the, the tax collectors. And that's what we're going to be reading now. Is, this is right from uh, Jesus called Matthew the tax collector, the hated, the traitor, to be his own disciple. Jesus is the one who, who dined with them, who ministered to them. Even the Samaritan woman at the well, if you read that in John 4, even she said, you know you're not supposed to be talking with me, right? But that didn't stop Jesus. Jesus ministered to the unbelievers and the sinners and the least of these. And he understood that people were not the problem. That people have problems. And that's how we should be looking at the world around us. That to say that people are the problem is the attitude of resentment that we just read we shouldn't have. To understand that people have problems and Jesus is the solution is the attitude of compassion. And that's what Jesus exemplified so well. Now we're going to be reading uh, verses 12 and 13 of Matthew 9. But to set this up, what happened here is that Jesus just called Matthew, the tax collector, to be his disciple. And that in and of itself was a problem for many. But now he went to Matthew's house and is having dinner with other tax collectors and sinners that we read. And the Pharisees saw this and they said to Jesus' other disciples, why is your teacher associating with those kinds of people, essentially? You know, he shouldn't be with them. Those are the sinners and the rejects. Why is he with them? And this is the reply of Jesus that says it all and really gives his example to us. He says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice. 
For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. So we see in this interaction is actually the Pharisees adopting the same mentality and misconception that we're addressing today. That there's the good, there's the righteous, and there's the bad, the sinners. They should not be with one another. But Jesus, who actually is righteous, all righteous, is now associating with these lowly sinners. And he's saying that's exactly the way that it's supposed to be. Because how are they to get healthy if they do not go to the doctor? Jesus. So now that's the mentality we should adopt as we follow the example of Jesus. We understand that that Jesus quotes Hosea, the prophet here, as he is rebuking Israel, saying, God desires your mercy, not sacrifice. It's that same attitude that we talked about before, is viewing people through the, the lens of mercy, that they have problems and they need help, and you may be part of the solution to bring them to Jesus. Not sacrifice, which is just saying, I've done all of these things. I've led such a good life. I've distanced myself from all of those things that I've sacrificed so much for Jesus, I'm righteous. What Jesus is really interested in is our compassion for those who need help, not ourselves patting ourselves on the back and calling ourselves righteous. God desires love from his people more than ritual observances. And so if we completely disassociate ourselves from sinners and unbeliever, we deserve the same rebuke the Pharisees received. Essentially, do you understand what this whole thing is actually about? At times, we can adopt that same mentality of the Pharisees to ignore the outcasts and those, the least of these, the worst of the worst, and discriminate against them. But Jesus shows us a different way, a life of mercy and compassion. But it's not just the example of Jesus we need to follow. Really, the last point we're getting today is this is the expectation. This is the command of Jesus. You can just flip back to Matthew 5. But the idea here is that we have to obey the commands of Jesus to reach out to the lost. This is not an optional activity. It's the expectation and the design of Jesus for his church. That Jesus entrusts his gospel to us for us to share with the world that really needs it. Now often in a, in a point like this, we'd, we'd focus on the two big marching orders from Jesus. Matthew 28, which is the Great Commission. Therefore go and make disciples of all the world, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I have commanded you. Beautiful verse that tells us the clear expectations of Jesus and the, some of the last words to his disciples. Or Acts 1.8 is another one, that, that we be empowered with the Holy Spirit to be the witnesses of Christ to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Or our context, that would be as witnesses in the, in the West Metro and the Midwest and North America and all around the world. Those are big, grand ideas, but I think think this very concept started at the beginning of his ministry as well in the most simple way, in the Sermon on the Mount. When he still knew in his earthly ministry, Jesus shared these words. 
in Matthew 5. I'm going to start back in verse 14. He says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, if our mentality is just to, to protect ourselves in, in the cave from the big bad world, how are we ever going to be shining our light before all men? That they can see the good deeds, again, these are God's good deeds through us, that they may glorify God in heaven. It's not just this approach of thinking systematically, how can we reach the whole world? How can we create plans and goals and programs and raise, raise funds and send teams to reach the people across the world? That's, that's important in and of itself. But I think it starts much more simple than that. Are you shining the light where you are right now? The light of Christ into a dark and broken world. If you light it, are you just going to hide it or are you going to put it up high so that everyone in the room can see it? Be a light in your own community first. I think that's something that's been a, uh, a goal of our church for a long time, something we build a lot of our efforts around. We have a missions team that reaches many around the world, shining the light of Christ in those dark areas. We have weeks like this we're kicking off where we're inviting people in to shine the light of Christ into their life. But it's so much more than just creating a plan. I think it's just often responding to the needs exactly where you're at. We're in a broken world with so many needs. Sometimes it's tangible things. They just need a helping hand. Sometimes it's emotional. We need to offer them compassion and comfort as they're working through these things and be praying for them. Sometimes it's financial. Many times it's spiritual. But whatever it is, shining the light of Christ means understanding the needs around you and helping to fill them, helping to serve the people that are there. Shine the light of Christ in the world that they may see your good deeds and not glorify you, but the Father in heaven. But none of this is possible if you are not present with the people in need. See, if your strategy as a Christian is simply to hide from the big bad world, I, I want to just offer you one bit of insight into that. It's possible that it's not so much that you're saving yourself, but you're cementing in them how much they're lost. You, as a follower of Christ, have the opportunity and the ability to shine his light into the people around you. We certainly need to be wise. As Jesus, who told his own disciples that they need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves as they consider the dangers out there. But you also need to be bold. You also need to trust and build these relationships with the people that need Jesus. Christians should always associate with the world that needs them. That's how the kingdom is built. But always remember who you're yoked to first. It's Jesus. He's the one who gives us all of the insight of where to go and when and how fast and how long. Jesus is building his kingdom. 
but he's using us to reach out as his hands, his feet, as salt and light in the world. I'm going to leave you with this one thought. You may be the person God is going to use to change someone's eternity forever. Not the pastor, not the missionary, not the evangelist. You. You may be that person. Pray for those opportunities. See the opportunities and make the most of every opportunity. Be the light of Christ in the world. Pray with me as we close. God, I just do pray for all of us that uh, when we think about everyone out there, and I know all of us are thinking of some people specifically, God, help us to be your hands and your feet to extend your love and your mercy and your compassion into their lives as we shine your light brightly in this world. But God, I do pray that we'd be people not motivated by fear and resentment, but we'd see everyone through the lens of love and compassion and mercy. God, that we could really, truly be your advocates here in this world as you build your kingdom amazingly and humbly through us. So God, empower us by your spirit and lead us to the places that you have us go, that we can be those beautiful feet who bring the good news to the world who needs it. We thank you for this, and we pray again for your leading and your power in all things. In your name, Jesus, amen.